my grandmother taught me something um, which didn't really resonate until I was much older. And she's like, Ana Maria, you have only a few seats in the front row of your life. Why are you allowing your biggest critics to take up one of those seats? This is Women Killing It. Each week, women who are killing it in their careers share their stories and advice for making it in today's working world. Your host is Sally Hubbard. Today's guest is Ana Maria Chavez, the Chief Growth Officer of the National Council on Aging. Ana is the former CEO of the Girl Scouts USA. She was named as one of Fortune's world's greatest leaders and honored as one of the most creative people in business by Fast Company. Congratulations, Ana Maria. You are killing it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's been it's been a wonderful ride. I want to hear all about your career path and your journey of getting where you are today. But could you just start by telling us what your role is currently uh, at at the National Council on Aging? Well, I have an amazing job, um, and I will tell you why. The National Council on Aging is doing everything they can to ensure that everyone has the right to age well. And as you know, that's the goal most people have, right, is to get to a stage in their life where they can really focus on things that they want to focus on. Perhaps, you know, a new career at 65, perhaps, you know, uh, traveling to a different country. And so I love working for this national nonprofit that really has been at the intersection of public policy programmatic initiatives, and well, thought leadership around, again, the right to, to live and age well. We've been in existence for almost 70 years, and we have a great team led by a great CEO, G- Jim Furman, Dr. Furman, and I call it the trifecta. Really, really smart people that are very, very passionate about the mission, and they're nice, right? <laughs> what a perfect place to, to work. Yeah, nice. That's the, How did you find that out in advance? Did you have nice... <laughs> Yeah, well, nice I've, interviews. Well, I've actually been in the aging sector before, so knew of the National Council on Aging. They have a wonderful reputation. They've done great work, again, for six decades. And so I knew of their work, knew of where they were going in the future, and I thought that I could be helpful, especially in the strategy part of it. And uh, aging is also, in many ways, a women's issue, right? Because Absolutely. women live longer usually have less money to get them through those those years of not working. And so there's har- bigger problems with poverty among elderly Absolutely. women. What's very, very clear coming through the data is that aging disproportionately impacts women and women of color. So it was interesting. We just went through a year-long strategy process to really glean on sort of the wonderful impact we've made so far. We actually set a goal, an impact goal that we were going to reach in 2020 of impacting 10 million people. We're actually going to reach that number a year early. So we jump-started a process, say, okay, where are we going to be by 2030 and what could our impact be? And as we started doing analysis on the data, we found that the majority of the people that we're serving now with our programs and services and through partners at the state level were women. And then we started to peel back, again, the issues impacting women in aging, and we found that, yes, they tend to live longer um, because they on-ramp and off-ramp their careers, their salaries get adjusted, um, sometimes not in the most positive way. So they're saving less for retirement. They're putting less in Social Security. So they live longer. Then they become caregivers, 
right? And so it, there was a lot of issues that we were starting to see that there could be a way that NCOA could actually lean in on those issues and provide a national voice around how to help women age better. I had um, Zephyr Teach out on this podcast a while ago, and she's been a political candidate. And she talked about the absence of women in the absence, the, the low number of women in politics means that certain issues aren't even on the agenda. And the issue that she brought up was elder care. Mm, and absolutely. she said that it's normally, you know, women that disproportionately take on that elder care responsibility. And it's, of course, interferes with their ability to um, make a living. And it's expensive and, you know, and because they're not women in office, this is not even like an issue. We talk about child care. We don't even really talk about elder care that much in the political discourse. No, absolutely. And, and, you know, I've been been I have been a big proponent of gender balanced leadership in this country for a very long time. And what I found is if you don't have it, then certain issues aren't at the forefront because, again, you don't have that perspective at the table. If you think about it now, right, if we don't have 50 percent of the population at the public policy tables, even at the university level, um, in the business CEO level, then there are certain issues that are going to be missed. Um, and so I'm really excited about continuing to work in that area to support other women so that they will feel encouraged to run for office or maybe become the CEO of their organization. And now before your current role, you were the CEO of Girl Scouts USA. That yes. must have been quite an experience. Oh, I loved it. It was great. Well, I was a Girl Scout growing up, so it was a dream come true to be able to give back to an organization that made such an impact on me. And, you know, I started in the field level, so I actually ran a local Girl Scout council in San Antonio, Texas, and just really loved getting back into the mission and seeing what Girl Scouts had done over 100 years. They have an amazing track record and should be very proud of what they've done. I have to say, I read that the Digital Cookie Initiative was during your time, and I had a daughter. I have a daughter, but she was a Girl Scout um, during your during and, and used the Digital Cookie Initiative. And I was so thankful for that because it made the whole process of the cookie sales <laughs> much less of a you know responsibility for the for the parent. Sure, right, absolutely. Like as a working mom, the cookie sales can be a little bit. <laughs> Stressful. Yeah, you lose your dining room for an entire quarter of the year, right? <laughs> and then I end up just buying so many cookies myself that now I actually don't even can't even eat them anymore because I've eaten so many. But um, I appreciate that initiative. That's a big accomplishment. Do you, was there are there other things when you look back? So you had this amazing job. Now you were the 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 head of this um, you know amazing and huge organization. When you look back on your career, what are some of the highlights that stand out for you of things that you're uh, particularly proud of? Yeah. Oh, wow. So I've been thinking about that actually recently because I had the great opportunity to turn 50. Proud and 50. Uh, and, you know, you sit back when you you have those milestone birthdays and go, okay, reflection time. You know, what what's next? But most importantly, how can I celebrate, you know, mm-hmm. some of the milestones that not necessarily that I achieved, but that my family has achieved and that my coworkers have achieved. And, you know, what's been a constant thread throughout my life, which I'm very proud of, is that I've had great mentors and great bosses. And it made me think that I'm still in touch with bosses I had back in the early 90s. These are still mentors of mine. Anywhere I travel in the country, if I'm in their locality, you know, I 
you know, I, I make prearrangements and I travel with them and catch up with them because they really are responsible for my ability to actually be able to do different things in my career. Um, they were the first ones. Basically, I have a great mentor in Arkansas who told me, Anna, stop squatting like a puppy and run like a big dog, right? <laughs> <laughs> and he told me the, he taught me the great lesson of, you know, you've got to learn your craft, Right, you're a young attorney, um, right out of law school. You got to learn what it's like to do legal research and write those briefing memos. And might not be the most glamorous part of your career, but it's a good foundation. And I'm I'm grateful that he sat me down in my you know my twenties and told me that because it taught me a great lesson. Another mentor I worked for, wonderful man who hired me straight out of Yale, and he's like, come work for me at the law firm for the summer between undergrad and law school. I said okay, and so I showed up big law firm in Phoenix, all excited, and I'm looking for my office. And they escort me to a cubicle in the back. And he basically said, Anna, your job will be to do case filings and to start new files for new clients. And when the receptionist goes on break or vacation, guess what? You're going to be the receptionist. Can you imagine? And again, that taught me a great lesson about the support system that it takes to run an organization. And that regardless of your position in organization. You need to respect and care for everybody in the organization. So again, I'm very grateful that over the last almost 30 years, I've had great mentors and great bosses. But that's kind of hard, though, coming out of Yale, right? (laughs) Let me just say it was a very humbling opportunity. (laughs) Yeah. Do you think that happened to your um, white male Yale peers? Well, it's interesting. He actually, my boss was one of the first Latinos from Arizona to go to Yale. So it wasn't necessarily, he just really wanted me to get my grounding and understand. Because you can't come out of these universities thinking, oh, you know, I'm the greatest thing since sliced bread, da, da, da. And, you know, what I've learned over the years is sometimes there's power in knowing what you know and what you don't know. And the big lessons I've learned in my career is you've got to understand the culture you're walking into, any organization. And if you don't adjust your leadership style based on the culture, you can run into a lot of culture walls. So I've been able to learn that lesson on. And what I've also found is people are more accepting when you approach them from a space of wanting to learn and being open to feedback versus coming in saying, I'm the best thing and, you know, you should follow me. That I've just noticed that doesn't resonate well with people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've heard that listening is one of the most important leadership skills. And it really makes me scratch my head as to why, when we look at leadership, whether it's political or corporate, it's still mostly men in those positions. If listening is the best <laughs> skill, um, it's that's something that women tend to excel at, and uh, to make a stereotype. But in general, um, you know, that should be advancing us further, but you know, there's a lot of it seems like restraints that we come across. You made it to the heights to being a CEO. You know, what do you credit as um, helping you get to the top levels and not kind of get stuck in the in the middle range that so many women do? You know, I think it's the way I was raised um, from a very very young age. I can actually remember helping my mother with her political campaign when I was eight years old. So I remember knocking on doors. I remember her spending hours at our kitchen table 
talking to people who would knock on her door in the neighborhood to say, you know, Maria, I need help with this, or I don't understand this, or I really have a huge issue with the way they're treating our kids in school. And I just, I just didn't understand it. Why are my parents spending so much time hearing other people's problems and solving? Other, like, what about us? I need that new, I need that new bike. You know, why aren't we on vacation at Disneyland? You know, and what I learned from them was, you know, honest leadership is not getting what you want out of it, but listening, and understanding the needs of the people you're serving. And that was stunning to me. I'm like, really? Because if you look, you watch movies and you look at all the stereotypes about leaders, it's always, you know, up front, you know ego, focus, you know, whatever the case may be. And my parents weren't anything like that. They were very humble, always putting people first. And so whether or not I wanted to be any other way, was I was just ingrained with that philosophy of servant leadership. So the other thing they taught me was no fear. When you're advocating on behalf of people, sometimes you've got to tackle really, really tough issues, unpopular positions. And you know you're not going to be, you know, held popular in certain segments, but that's your job. Or there's a lack of leadership, right? They're, they're, that perspective is not, you know, on the agenda. So you know what? You've got to step in and be that new leader and allow that change to happen. And so when I saw opportunities come up, maybe I was so naive, you know, that I didn't realize there were so many barriers. I just kind of jumped in. I applied to Yale because they sent me a brochure in the mail. I just assumed they wanted me to go. I had no idea about safety schools and how many thousands of kids applied every year and that it was going to be such a strange environment for me. I just assumed I yeah, I did okay in school. I thought I did well. They sent me a brochure. So some of it's just, I think, you know, dumb luck or, you know, naivete. And sometimes it's just passion for an issue and you see the lack of leadership and you're like, okay, too much is, to those who much have been given, much is required. There's so many interesting things I'd like to follow up on there. First of all, this applying to Yale thing is something that actually I look back and my upbringing. I mean, I was middle class, relatively privileged. And I look back and I never I didn't apply to any Ivy League colleges. And I was a straight A student, you know, and I look back and I'm like, why didn't I? And it was literally because I didn't know anyone who was. And it just and and so I'm very obsessed with this whole you got to see it to be it. And that's part of what I'm trying to do with this podcast is put out those female role models. But um, it just, you know, I didn't know anyone who was applying to those schools and it just didn't occur to me. Or like I just didn't think I was material. And I was a straight A student. Like I never got a B. I was a straight A student. Oh, you were one of those students. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Where did it get me? I don't know. Um, Great places. Great places. Um, but yeah, um, you know, so you, you said you, your family, you said it was a migrant family. Is that what you said? My dad was a migrant farm worker. Um, and so that's how he met my mother because my mother was helping to run one of the largest farms in Southern Arizona and that's how they met. And they just got very involved as local nonprofits. My dad became the president of the Rotary Club in the town. I mean, they were, I mean, they were really into it. It was really fun to watch. Um, so that again, I just saw them doing things. So I just assumed we, that's what we did in our family. I didn't know we were poor. I, who, who knows that, right? I was hanging out with all the same kids in our neighborhood. We didn't see race. We didn't see color. We didn't see ethnicity or religion. My Girl Scout troop in Eloy was a, a very diverse group. And the only reason I know this, I found a picture of my troop. And, you know, how many years later? And so, oh, my goodness. So there was the daughter of the local minister of the Presbyterian Church. And 
there's the African-American girl I used to hang out with. But again, I didn't see race at that time. Mm -hmm. um, I just saw girls and doing fun things and going camping. And, um, and so maybe that was part of it as well. We were just adventuring out. And so when I got older and my parents knew education was the key to success in the United States, right? It was gonna open up a whole new avenue of opportunities. And so they were very focused on it. I will tell you that. They were big proponents of education. And I'm very proud of my daddy. He turned 89 years old um, very recently on July 16th. And he put three kids through college, two of them through Ivy League schools. Wow. Yeah. Talk about American dream. Yeah, definitely. The American dream for sure. And, you know, um, I love the idea that you just kind of were raised with seeing the way your parents were, that they saw the problems and they took them on. They didn't just say, oh, these problems are here. Right. Let's just go about our life and worry about our own thing. Yeah. Like they, You were just raised with a mindset like when there are problems, you need to work to solve them. Absolutely. And I think those are two different mindsets. Like I come from an activist family. My mother was a always as still is an activist and um so it was always just this mindset that you have to be an activist about things and it was never you know i, I know a lot most people i think are not raised in that mindset they're raised in kind of like this is the way things are and you just have to kind of like accept it and and look out for your your own self and make yourself financially secure and whatnot right right well i think i'm right there with you and i think that's why i've been a student of leadership for all these years because i've always wondered what makes the difference why in the same neighborhood and perhaps even in the same family certain people just lean in and do things very differently and the others don't um but i've also seen a, a, again a common theme of those individuals who do go down a unique path there tends to be a, an adult that has mentored or pushed them i've seen in research around girls specifically especially girls who want to go after stem careers what we found at girl scouts was one of the number one reason girls go into stem and stem education and careers is the influence of a male figure in the household who's encouraging her to go into stem field so you know i follow that along i look at you know i read a lot of studies about women leaders and you know in other countries why is it that other countries have elected female presidents and it's not the first time in the last 10 years they've been doing it consistently for decades what's different in europe and these other countries that's different here um why by different states do we have different makeup of elected officials so it's fascinating to me just from a from a data standpoint, scientific standpoint, and most importantly, what can we as women do to support each other so that we have almost the audacity, right, to step into some of these roles when everything else is telling us that it's not our role to do? Yeah, I think audacity is the key word, right? We've got to <laughs> just constantly be ignoring all of the messages that we're getting, the subliminal messages. I mean, I've been thinking about that a lot every day how many messages are we getting that you know we don't belong in those positions of power right. and you know ignoring it and that's you know we're gonna we have to have the audacity to take it right or knowing the data out there that makes it so hard um knowing that how do we encourage women to go forward i've been doing a lot of research recently actually about um women ceos and you know unfortunately what we have found in the last two years, the number of female CEOs of the top 100 corporations in the United States has actually decreased. 
actually in two years, between 2017 and 2015, there's been a 25% decline in female CEOs. So for a while, we saw an uptick, and we were all celebrating, wow, we're going to get to you know 25%, and we did, and then all of a sudden, it's regressed. And I had the great fortune over the last 10 years to hang out with some of these amazing female C- CEOs, you know, whether it was Jenny Rometty at IBM, whether it was Denise at Campbell Soup, um, whether it was you know, Marissa Meyer at Yahoo or the great Sheryl Sandberg, who's a friend, you know, um, and to listen to their stories and then to read the data. And most recently, the research that's come out, not about necessarily the glass ceiling, but the glass cliff, where... Research has shown that, um, again, women t- are t- tend to be chosen to go into roles where an organization is in crisis. Mm-hmm. So what happens is they take over these organizations, and the board does it because they want to signal change. And because women are seen as being empathetic, and they're, they'll come in and build teams, and you know they'll, they'll bring things together in a very collaborative way. But the other side is they're taking over a situation where it, the organization's been in decline. So it's kind of like, you know, you're trying to pull the, the steering wheel up out of a deep dive. And sometimes that's very different for anybody, regardless of their background, right? And so because women tend to go into those roles, there's a you know, harder chance of pulling it out. They tend to not stay long. And what we're also finding in research is that those female CEOs don't come back meaning they don't go on to other big CEO jobs at another Fortune 100 company, although men transition very well between roles. So a lot of research coming out around that. I think it's within the last decade that they've sort of acknowledged that. And the only reason I bring it up is then women need to know. I, I want to convince them that these are great opportunities. I would tell any person that even though it's a risky situation and it's a tough job to take over, that you've got to balance the pros and cons. But ultimately, it's not just about negotiating a salary and benefits. If you're going to take on these type of roles, you've got to negotiate support systems, Mm. right? That full transparency, this is what's going on. I'm going to perhaps need a leadership coach to help me navigate the cultural waters in an organization, to pick the right team, to communicate effectively different key stakeholder groups. I mean, there's a lot we can do to support leaders who are taking on those challenges. And specifically women, because they tend to be one of few in that boardroom. So we got to support them. I've also read some troubling statistics that when a company is doing badly, if it's a female CEO, she gets blamed. Whereas if it's a male CEO, they're like, oh, the market is not performing well. Uh, They blame it on other factors. But when it's a female CEO, they blame it on the woman. Absolutely. And they tend to actually, and it's specifically around the media and how they portray those stories in the media. What was stunning to me are a few things out of that research is, one, most of the stories when they announce female CEOs, they talk about her family. They talk Mm -hmm. about her wardrobe. They talk her personality. They don't do that for male CEOs. In addition, when it's a story about the organization is not doing well, the story is more negative if it's written by a female writer versus a male writer. That's what was stunning to me as well. Oh, that's so, not good. So, yeah. <laughs> okay, so let's focus on the good news. What is the good news? Why would a woman want to be a leader in an organization? Because we, we have an obligation. Like you said, girls can't be what they can't see. 
And if we, ha- if we need to bring issues that are important to families, important to individuals to the forefront, we need everybody's perspective. If we're going to solve the huge economic issues in this country, we need every bright mind around that business table, the government table, the science table, right, to find the right cures for, for illnesses. So I'm a big proponent about, you know, stepping in into a leadership role. Of course, eyes wide open with all the data uh, and a support system to make sure you're successful. And I'm currently also very obsessed with um, not just the gender pay gap, but just generally the wealth gap, right? And thinking about how um, in a capitalist society, wealth does equal power. And I am almost feeling like as women, we have an obligation to start caring about making some money. I know you've been in the nonprofit world, but in terms of being <laughs> to the a chagrin c- of my husband. <laughs> <laughs> but in terms of, you know, the CEO. If we leave all those top roles, those highest paying roles to men, they're going to have all the power and all the money and all the, hence all the power. And that's how we see all the policy that's playing out in our country. Most women in this country right now are very upset at the policies that are going that are, you know, happening in, in, in at a national level in particular. And, you know, if we want to see the table, it's running for office, but it's also having the means to support those candidates that we like, to have that influence. You know, the lobbying and, you know, that that political power is meaningful. Right. I, you know, again, I've been a, obviously raised in an environment where voting was important, civic participation was important. Um, you know, going back to the Girl Scouts, we had girls, you know, being socially conscious for the last 60, 80 years. Um, but one of the areas that we have to develop as females, and that's why there's a Girl Scout badge with the little brownies around how you save money, how you become a philanthropist, because we have to teach girls and women how to approach money very differently. We have to talk about it. What does that mean? Because if we're not teaching young women to understand the power behind being financially secure, guess what? When they look at retirement, they're not going to be prepared, right? They're going to have to continue working longer than they would want. They're going to tend to be that caregiver, right, either for their spouse, their partner, or their parents, or their children, right? And because we're going to probably live longer based on statistics, our health care is going to continue and health care prices are going up. Mm-hmm. So I'm all about making sure people have the ability to live the way they want to, both with a healthy living lifestyle and also with economic security. And so there has to be education around what do we do to save for our entire lifespan. And people are like, well, how did you go from serving youth to seniors? And when I said, no, 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 it's been a continuum. I started my service in senior um, issues. I used to lead the team that ran um, aging services for the state of Arizona. And so learned very early on about those issues, but specifically around elder abuse and what was happening there. And and a key theme there was poverty, right? So, and then when I went to the youth side, I saw again, oh my goodness, we got to start really early. So now I'm at the other side of the continuum of a life cycle of a woman where I've seen what we need to do at the front end through K through 12 education. Clearly there's a system for teaching both men and women about how to become a professional in their career, but nobody's teaching us how to live a third stage of life. And so at NCUA, we actually have a program called AG Mastery Program. Well, we actually do that. It's a really great program. But again, we're trying to do that community by community because we're finding as people don't know what to do. What's the toolkit? What do I need to do to get ready for the third stage of life? And certainly that investing and saving and, you know, making sure that you have the financial security is 
a huge, huge part of it. And we've talked, I had on this podcast Sally Krawcheck, who does, um, founded Elevest. Oh, of course. And um, it's a lot about closing that investing gap because men do invest more. And also her algorithm for investing takes into account women's longer life stages. Oh, so um, we've got to work from a, from a lot of different angles. But certainly I'm currently obsessed with the financial literacy and I feel maybe it's because of the way we're socialized in society that men's highest valued role is breadwinner under traditional, you know, uh, the, the way that we're, the stereotypes are and the way that we're kind of socialized and women as caregiver, right, that we're not spending enough effort and, and mind share on our financial situations, right, right as right. women. I see it changing a bit with the millennial population um they are a little bit more focused actually the conversations that i'm having with my colleagues who are from the millennial uh, population group is many of them have chosen not to get married or even if they do get married not to have children um and so their issues are okay so if i don't get married right so what happens at 65 i don't have a partner to take care of me so that the issue of saving for retirement is actually even more intense because i'm not going to have a partner to support or the, the expenses as we grow older, or a pension that we would have together, right? So it's actually different issues that are by generation that are occurring. And because right now, a lot of our organizations have five generations working under one roof. How do we communicate these issues in a way where it resonates with these different population groups and generation groups? And the way a 70-year-old woman approaches her senior years will be very different than somebody in their 50s mm -hmm. who's still in mid-career, probably is going to work another 30 years, um, and is still still has children in school, right? And right. thinking about how am I going to how how do I invest in my retirement and a college fund for my child? Right, it's big issues, right? Oh man, yeah, I'm heading toward those issues. <laughs> Actually, I'm already there. I'm saying I'm just in denial. I'm just in total denial. Um, You've shared some of your pearls of wisdom, but I would also just like to ask you one of my favorite questions, which is what are some things that you know now that you wish you would have known when you were starting in your career? Oh, wow. Um, so much, right? I think about that a lot. You know, I tell people nowadays, I care. I just care differently. I think there were things that I was so narrowly focused on 25 years ago that today seems so unimportant. I wish I knew when I was in my career that there had to be more of a balance. Um, you know, I've recently spent a lot of time traveling, visiting family, uh, visiting friends who I've not kept in touch with over the last 10 years because of the pace of my career and the jobs I've had that I've traveled globally and so I didn't have that opportunity. Um, I wish I'd done more of that throughout my life. Um, I wish that um, I had really listen to some critical advice about investment very early on. But because that wasn't a big focal point for my parents, they didn't necessarily pass that on to me. So again, because I came from a situation where I didn't have a lot of wealthy people around me, it didn't make sense for me mm -hmm. to do that investment. I wish I had invested my salary earlier on in my 20s. Talk about compounding interest, right? right. I regret that. Um, I, I also wish that... Um, I didn't spend so much time with people who weren't supportive of my vision and my goals in my life. My grandmother taught me something um, which didn't really resonate until I was much older. And she's like, Ana Maria, you have only a few seats in the front row of your life. Why are you allowing your biggest critics to take up one of those seats? 
you know, and I've learned the power of feedback. I get that. I love feedback. Feedback's a gift. Growth is optional. But at a certain point, I find specifically women spend so much of their time, especially at work, Mm -hmm. stressing over and being upset about what other people are saying about them, you know, criticizing them, not not supporting them, not giving feedback in a way that's going to help them, but just crushing their soul. And I just remember just spending way too much time listening to people who, at the end of the day, you know, really weren't invested in my future. Um, And I wish I'd known that 20 years ago. (laughs) You know, I feel like that's something, so many of these things that I've learned uh, on this podcast, talking to all the women that I've had, um, I think about there, a lot of these issues I feel like I've learned myself as I've gotten older. And I know the millennial women, they know a lot more than I did, certainly at, at, when I was their age. But some of these things I feel like maybe you do learn it as you age, and then you also maybe have a little bit more control over, right? It's like true. I think about when I was a first year, I also was you know, a law, lawyer, first year associate at a law firm and had these partners that I were not my favorites to work for, but, you know, you feel so powerless in those circumstances. And I wonder, I think actually the younger millennial women now are kind of opting out of those frameworks, right? Mm -hmm. They're like, if they can't have more control, they're they're crafting their own path. I mean, I kind of wish I would have crafted my own path sooner because I feel like when now I, I, the people in my life are all really supportive and wonderful. And I've, and I've surrounded myself with people that lift me up. But there was definitely times um, when I didn't, but I, I just look back and I'm like, could I have? Right. And I always think about perspective, right? Um, even though we may have had a tough time in the 80s and 90s in a workplace, imagine the women who did what they did in the 1940s and 50s to actually give us that opportunity, right? When I was at Yale, graduating from Yale in 1990, women had only been on campus for 20 years at the undergrad level. 20 years, two decades. So, you know, I think, you know, these steps are great. You got to sit back and be reflective on, wow, we've come a long way. We still have a long way to go. But I also appreciate those who come before us Mm -hmm. to know, you know, the tremendous struggles they've had. Mm -hmm. You know, I recently had the opportunity to visit the African-American Museum of History in Washington, D.C., the, the newest Smithsonian. Right. Unbelievable. Waited six months to get tickets. And that was striking to me, right, to see the, our history of this country and what has transpired over 300 years and that we've got some deep societal issues based on our history. And we're not going to outlive those in the next mm-hmm. decade. They're going to be part of our DNA. Mm-hmm. But we have to learn from history. Uh, get strength from people who took on those big battles and then move on. And and I think you're right. The generation of kids that are, we're, we're raising now, the millennials who are in the workplace, they do come with a different perspective. I think they do come with more of a scope of possibility because they don't remember what it was like. I remember growing up in a small town in Arizona and wondering why there were different um, places to drink water in our little local movie theater and why there was a balcony and it was roped off and and my parents told me you know back in the 40s that's where a certain segment of our population those of color went to the balcony and drank out of these fire uh, these water faucets and the others that that was within my family's history so it's it's amazing to me again the progress we're making um, we have to stay positive because it's the only way things will get better 
And you mentioned uh, one other thing I wanted to go back to. You mentioned when you were a child and you were in the Girl Scouts and you, um, looking back on it, saw that it was actually quite a diverse group. And at the time, you weren't even aware of that. Do you think that's the case now for children or do you think that there's more division? You know, again, I'm a a lifetime optimist. So what I would tell you (laughs) is I think it's getting better. Um, I think race will become less of an issue in the future generations because, like my family, right, we're biracial. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. My son, yes, is Hispanic and very proud of that, but his daddy is also, you know, Czech and English and Polish and German. And so he looks at race very differently, mm-hmm. almost like really. And, and the students in his class don't see race like that either. So I think it will come with more openness, more inclusive leanings. Uh, I think they will think that there's power in actually being more inclusive than not. So I have great hopes, actually. Well, I'm glad. I think I need some hopes. That the news have been ru- has been rough lately. <laughs> <laughs> a little optimism is a good thing. Yeah, you, you know, as my daddy says, on if you wake up in the morning, you're still breathing. It's a great day. <laughs> I'm going to tell myself that tomorrow morning. (laughs) Well, on that note, I want to thank you so much. This has been such an interesting interview. And um, for people who are listening to follow you and follow up with what what you're doing and what you're working on now, where should they find you on the Internet? Absolutely. Well, first of all, I would love individuals to look up the organization I'm working at now. They're doing great work. We need your support. Our focus is on seniors uh, and over their 60s and, you know, again, that are struggling to make ends meet. Um, but most importantly, how we bring people along in the journey in their third life. So you can find me at www.ncoa.org. You can also follow me on Twitter at Ana Maria Chavez. And I look forward to having a dialogue with you and others who are interested in learning and growing. Well, it's been such an inspiring interview and such a pleasure talking to you today. Thanks for being here. Thank you. If you enjoyed this show, please subscribe to our podcast, rate and review us on iTunes, and most importantly, tell a friend about us. Thanks for joining us.